morning's text being if we are in the season of Easter is a resurrection story. So may God resurrect in us, raise up in us a new understanding of this word as it is revealed to us in the gospel account of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew, Bethesda, or Bethesda, which has five porticos, and in these lay many invalids, blind and lame and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up and take your mat and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now, that day was a Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. At the risk of facing the facts that I will no longer have any excuse, I have been in the past four months calendar challenged. When Apple decided to move from mobile me to iCloud, for some reason my two Apple devices, my phone and iPad, no longer would sync with each other or with my office uh, computer, my PC and Outlook. It would sync in every possible way except with my calendar. I tinkered with it hour after hour whenever I had a spare moment Starting in early January, January is not the best time to have a loss of your calendar on your computer, by the way. So I was frantic. The more I worked on it, the more frustrated I got. I finally called Apple. I talked to some people there. I talked to four or five people. They tried to walk me through various ways of fixing it, deleting, reprogramming, reformatting, the whole nine yards. It never worked. Finally, I decided to, it was time to talk to a supervisor. Well, to get to a supervisor at, at, at Apple is like talking to the Pope. But I was finally able to whine enough to get them to do so, and my first supervisor, ironically, was from Argentina. And he knew as much about uh, Apple as anybody ever talked to. I thought he was the Pope. Uh, I came in on Friday morning to have this conversation with him. <clears throat> it lasted three hours. He was flummoxed. I've never seen this, he said. Well, neither have I, I said, and I don't want to see it again. Call me next week. We'll spend some more time on it. I'll talk to my supervisor. Well, I didn't have time to call him the next week, so I waited another week, and when I called, he was on vacation. So I was able to get through to another supervisor, this time a woman in Denver named Sarah, and she was even more help than this guy. She had more uh, offerings of what to do and how to fix it, and after three hours of working with her, it still didn't work. <laughs> she said, here's the case number, here's my number, here's my extension, 
when you get more time, call me. I didn't have another three hours to fix it, and so I began to just muddle through. I even almost resorted to that most radical of all options, a paper calendar. However, we managed. And then last week, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, a little notice came on my computer that said, iCloud update, or upgrade, or download. And I, okay, I didn't expect anything to happen, but I went ahead and downloaded it into my PC and went on about my business. A couple of hours later, I looked at my iPhone, and all of a sudden, everything that was on my office computer was now on my iPhone, and then I looked at my iPad, and everything was on my iPad, and now we were syncing together the first time in four months. It was, it was the kingdom of God. <laughs> Too bad that we can't fix the systems and institutions that we live and move and have our being in that easily. This story in this morning's passage is about just that. In fact, all the stories about Jesus are about just that. Jesus facing the systems and institutions and organizations, what Paul calls the powers and principalities, and trying to bring to them a healing, a way of understanding that they are broken and dysfunctional and that through the presence of God and Jesus Christ and the grace offered there, these systems and institutions can experience a resurrection. I'm talking about our educational systems. I'm not talking about the separation between church and state for Jesus. It was always about an issue of who had access and who didn't. I'm talking about our justice systems. I'm talking about our economic systems. I'm talking about our religious and social systems. Those powers and principalities that would determine who's in and who's out. John's Gospel is clear when Jesus begins his ministry. The first thing out of the shoot is he has a party. It's the wedding at Cana when he turns the 12 jars of water into wine. It's symbolic of his own life and the rich, fertile gift of his blood that would be offered in his servanthood. And then the first thing out of the shoot from that, Jesus goes to the temple and overturns the tables of the money changers. Not because they had money going on in church, but because the job of the money changers was to sell the dove and the sheep and other sacrificial offerings to those who could afford it. Because you see, the greater your sacrifice, the closer and deeper into the temple you got to go. Which is to say those with means had more access to God than those with lesser means. So he overturns the table, calling into question that whole system. From there, Jesus goes out to the countryside where the poor and outcasts usually are, and he begins to minister to them. And from there, he steps even one step further out onto the edge by going to the Samaritans, themselves Jews. However, they were considered heretics and outcasts, too. And from ministering to the Samaritans in John's Gospel, we haven't even gotten to the fifth chapter yet, Jesus then begins to minister to a Samaritan woman, a divorced woman who had been married five times. 
He speaks to her directly, breaking all moral and social custom. Offers her water, which again is the symbolic water of life. And they have this encounter, completely unheard of in Jesus' day. But again, there is Jesus breaking uh, the social and religious systems that define who was in and who was out. From the woman, he goes out to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, totally out of the realm. And then the last thing he does before this morning's text is he heals the son of a Roman politician. Can you imagine? They were so hated by the Jews. The Roman politician's son gets healed. From that point, then, we come to our text this morning. There's a sheep gate near the temple in Jerusalem. It's called Bethesda. It is, uh, has now been uncovered by archaeologists. Uh, it was on the way to the temple from the city of Jerusalem. If you were going to the temple, you would have to pass by the sheep gate. And there was this pool there. It didn't make clear in your Bible. In the fourth verse of the text, which has probably been removed from your new RSV, there was an addition put on by the later church that explained it. It was thought that when the angel would come down and move the waters on uh, in the pool, uh, that those who got there first would be cured of their illness and disease. Uh, and so everyone gathered around the pool. Yet there were many there who gathered who never expected to get to the waters. They were there simply to beg. It was their only way to manage in life. They were completely ostracized by the religious authorities because you see in those days, if you were ill or sick, it meant that you must have done something terrible. You must have sinned because you wouldn't be in the place you're in if you had not sinned. And so they were always outcast by the religious authorities, never had access to the temple at all, yet there they were in the shadow of the temple and as the good religious people would walk by, they would from time to time throw them a shekel or two as they went to church. I mean, we're called to do almsgiving. But supposedly they never took notice until Jesus walks by. And he notices a man who had been there for a long time, the text says. And he does notice him. The man is unnamed. And Jesus simply asks him, Do you want to be made well? That's a legitimate question. When we have been so immersed in our own brokenness and dysfunction and guilt and, and, and illness, sometimes we don't know any better. We've become so used to it that we really don't want to risk getting out of it. And so Jesus was simply asking if he wanted freedom from that place. Now the man was not stupid. He had heard that question asked of him a thousand times. How many people had gone past him to say, you want to get well? Then confess. Because you must have done something to put you in this place. You want to get well? Just stop drinking. You want to get well? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Make something of your life and become responsible. This man was no idiot. He'd heard that question a thousand times. So he doesn't answer him. 
Instead, he hedges. He says to Jesus, it sounds a little bit like a whine. For 38 years, I've been lying beside this sheep's gate pool, and I have not gotten to the waters when they were stirred because I don't have a family or friends to put me in it. Which was a confession of how absolutely alienated and alone this man was. At night, he would burrow himself into some rat hole. In the daytime, he would drag himself over to the sheep gate and beg. That was his whole life. Jesus then says to him, Repent. Confess. No. No. Jesus says to him, Stand up and walk. And pick up your pallet and go. No lecture, no moral threat, no any of that. Just simply stand up, resurrect, and walk. The man was the recipient of grace. There is that act of God's love for us that is completely undeserving, unmerited, and unearned. The man hadn't even called out to Jesus when he walked by. He had done nothing to deserve it. Yet Jesus called him up and brought him to help. You see, this story is radical. And it's meant to be radical to all the systems and institutions that want to make the rules about who gets in and who doesn't. For the Jewish authorities, this was a complete threat. If you read on in the text, you find out that the man didn't even stop to ask Jesus' name. He wasn't even that grateful. So later, when the Jews see him walking around with his pallet, because it was the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath, nor are you supposed to carry your pallet on the Sabbath, they knew they had Jesus in a way that would convict him. So they asked the man what his name was. The man didn't know it. Later in the temple, when Jesus meets the man, ah, the man is now in the temple, which is to say he has been restored into community that is to be made well and sound. He's now inside, and he sees Jesus and asks him his name. Later, the man goes out and tattletales on him back to the Jewish authorities and says to them, his name is Jesus. And John says from then on, the temple religious authorities began to persecute Jesus and to plan how they would kill him. Grace is always way too radical and subversive for the systems and the powers and principalities that we live and move in. Because it blows all the ways we keep score out of the water. Exactly what Jesus had done this moment with this man. Now, it begs the question, how are we, or where are we, involved in such systemic ways that somehow prevent the kingdom of God from being made real? How are we as Riverside Church, or how are we as individual Christians, or how are we as United States citizens, or how are we in whatever group we are in, somehow connected to that systemic process that keeps those on the inside in and keeps those on the outside out. In education, or politics, or law, 
or religion or society or lifestyle. One of you gave me a book, uh, Sunday mentioned it to me, and so uh, on my announcing iPad, I downloaded it on my Kindle and began to read it on Monday. I've since finished it, and I recommend it to you. Its name, uh, book's name is Torn, written by a young man named Justin Lee. Justin Lee grew up in a very faithful Christian evangelical family, attending a very faithful Christian evangelical church. He himself was faithfully a Christian and evangelical and wanted to devote his whole life to serving God. His parents were wonderful parents. He had an almost idyllic childhood. But when he began to age, he began to notice that he had urges for the same sex. And he began to deal with the fact that he might be gay. It was his greatest fear because he had read in the Bible the supposed six passages that call that lifestyle into question. And he knew that in order to be a faithful Christian and a follower of God and a servant of God, that he could not live that way. So he denied all of that as best he could and, and tried to go on. But, he, but it became true over time that he could no longer deny it. So then he thought, I will pray to God and get my family to pray to God when he came out to them, that I will find a place where I can be healed and made well from this affliction so that I can become heterosexual and then serve God the way God wants me to. So we began the process of going, reading the books and going to seminars and therapy sessions from people who assured him that it was a matter of behavioral modification and he could change his his nature and become heterosexual. It didn't work. And in fact, he did some research to discover that in most of the cases, the authors of the books and the therapists themselves had in fact been caught still living a gay lifestyle. He was stuck. He was torn between his deeply committed Christian faith on the one hand and his now apparent identity as a gay person on the other. He makes the distinction between gay is not something you do, it is something you are. And he was becoming aware of the fact that that was his isness. So he sought out other Christians in his college, young Christians in his college, faithful Christians in a group. And as he did Bible study with them, he began to feel vulnerable enough to share what he was dealing with. And in almost every case, they said to him, just stop being gay. Just get over it. Just stop being gay. He felt from them off-putting alienation. So he decided to turn to his church. So he went to his pastor, and he sat down with him, and he said to him the story. And his pastor said to him, Justin, I'm so glad you came to see me. I deeply appreciate it. And I just want you to know that as long as you stay celibate and never act on your gay impulses, you will always be welcome into our church. The pastor went on to say, it's just like anyone who might have an infidelity, a relationship outside of marriage. If so, then they are not welcome in our church. And the same would be true for you. 
the system is broken. You cannot claim his identity and still be inside close to God according to this religious system. So, even more alienated, even more confused, even more torn, he begins to pray, not my will, but thine be done. Soon, 38 years, he hears that Tony Campolo is coming to town, and he decides that he wants to go see him. And so he attends the seminar. He walks up to Dr. Campolo, who is an evangelical Christian, and says to him, my name uh, is Justin Lee, and he begins to tell him the story. And Tony Campolo says, come over here, let's talk. Sits him down in the corner. And Justin said, I was waiting for it. I was waiting for the line to drop. Tony said, you know what? I'm glad you're here. And Justin said, I knew he was going to say next. I knew he was going to say, let's pray that you can be changed. But you know what? Tony did not say that. Instead, Tony Campolo said to him, I'm glad you're here. God loves you so much. Just that. And it was as if, these are my words, he stood up from that illness, that burden of shame that had been laid upon him all this time and was able to walk with his head up. It's a terribly painful story about our religious systems, our systems that keep people, whether gay or whatever, at arm's length. I was having a conversation with someone recently, and he said, you know, you just preach about too radical stuff. You need to calm it down some. People just want to hear the good news. Well, I got to tell you, if you're on the outside of the church, because the church has said you cannot come in, this is good news. And if we're the ones who are burdened by all of our self-righteousness that want to keep those people out, this is the good news. Because Jesus Christ and the power of his healing love and grace will release us from that if we are willing to stand up. Friends, Tony Campolo said, we all grew up hearing that we're called to love the sinner, but hate the sin. But you know what? Jesus never said that. What Jesus said was, love the sinner and hate your sin. Take the toothpick out of your own eye. No, the telephone pole out of your own eye, as Bigner says, before you worry about the toothpick in your neighbor. We, as a people of Jesus Christ, have within us the opportunity and the challenge to be that community that welcomes all people into fellowship. We may not agree with them, but we must welcome them. For when we do, we are made well in the Jesus sense of the word. Let us bring forth the gift of our lives and our labors.